Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome back to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel. Ian, how are you doing? I'm trying my best, trying to take it day by day right now. It is a bit of a grind, not going to lie, but, uh, you know, one day at a time. How are you doing? I'm actually doing pretty good. Like, I've had five days in a row of not being in my own head, which for me is like the first time this has happened in, oh, I don't know, four and a half years. So I have no idea why this like spurt of positivity or whatever has come on, but I'm going to ride it as long as possible. I was going to say, keep going with that. Rachel also just got a job, so I'm, I'm really happy for her. Things are going well in Rachel's life as the rest of the world is falling apart. So at least there's that, right? Yeah, I guess at least there's that. And I get to do my job from my house, so that's nice. I still will not be stepping outside nor doing anything, so that'll be that. I was going to say, I just got back from the protest for the, <laughs> the virus. Did but, you, you know. wear a mask to the protest that, for the virus that apparently doesn't exist? That's my favorite one, uh, is the people wearing masks at the protest, but also that say the virus isn't real. Like, those are the best. It is an interesting time we live in. But give me liberty or give me death. Okay, death. Like, I'm really looking forward to telling my grandkids about this. I don't know how many months this is going to last, but whatever years. this quarantine is, it's bizarre. Yeah. And everything about it is weird, and it's bringing out the... Best and worst in people, I would say. Yeah, I feel like you're starting, people are starting to show their colors. Um, and we are not a politics podcast, but let's just say there are some things that some sides are using that are a little bit concerning. So we would like a distraction from that. And again, stop protesting. This podcast does not encourage nor endorse protesting of any kind. We endorse staying inside. Yeah, so. I don't even know what to say when it comes to the, the political stuff because there's there's some interesting stuff going on right now that we're not going to touch on. Let's talk about some hockey. I'm more of a hockey person. I used to play goaltender growing up. I was very bad at it, and I think that's part of the reason I am so bad at evaluating it because I, I feel like if I were good at the position, I might have a better handle on it, and maybe I'd be able to use my eyes to pick out certain parts of the position better. Watch the game, Ian. Just hashtag watch the game. And it's funny with goaltending because that's going to be our main topic today. It's one of those positions where I feel like the best way to evaluate it these days is to find goalie experts who really know what they're talking about, really listen to them, and then combine it with some of the good numbers. But it's hard because a lot of the public stuff on goaltenders just sucks. And we're going to get into that today. But it's just such a hard position to evaluate I find myself, at the end of the day, when I'm trying to get answers on a goaltender, I end up with way more questions. And it's just, it's such a, statistically, you don't know what you're going to get from year to year from a save percentage standpoint. We're going to try to break down some of the walls when it comes to the voodoo-ness of goaltending. But where do you start when you're just trying to break down a goalie? What's the starting point for you? I think as I've been introduced to people who use numbers from their own tracking or from data that isn't necessarily publicly available, um, that's sort of where I turn to whenever someone starts talking about statistics. So two people immediately come to mind, and that's Steve Valaket and Cole Anderson. Um, all of their stuff is used not only with public data, but also they have the privilege of either tracking their own data or being able to use data that isn't public. And there is so much more that isn't public. Like I would say when it comes to goalies, there's probably 15 times more data available privately than there is publicly and actual helpful data. So those are two resources I use. Um, And both of them know how to evaluate with the eye test as well. So you get that mixture because both of them were goalies. And then the other guy that I have a ton of respect for, um, especially up here in Canada, is Jamie McLennan. I think he does a really good job of explaining the finer points, whereas a lot of other people have issues kind of articulating and communicating properly. And it just becomes more confusing where I think Jamie McLennan, Steve Alicat and Cole Anderson all have a really 
sort of solid way of communicating the finer nuances of goaltending. So those are the three opinions I trust. And it doesn't... They're kind of like the goalie versions of Mike Johnson, you know, where Mike they Ray, play the yeah. game. Yeah, exactly. They understand the game. They played it at a high level, but they're good at taking multiple aspects into account when they're kind of forming their opinion on things. So let's get into the weeds a little bit here. Why does the public data suck? And I know that it's funny... People like Micah Blake McCurdy or Evolving Wild or any of the, the hockey nerds out there, they're going to listen to this and say, well, no, the public data doesn't suck. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty decent at predicting Michael will stuff. tell you the public data sucks. <laughs> like... Here's the thing. I think when we're evaluating forwards, I think it can be very, very helpful. I think for evaluating defensemen, I think people are, aren't willing to admit that there's more there to evaluate defensemen at 5-on-5 five five, where you can say, hey, this guy's really impacting player really well. This guy's awesome. The hard part here is that we get to the goaltending part, and we get to the, hey, can you predict whether or not this goalie is going to save this next shot? Can you predict what his save percentage is going to be next year? And ask any statistical modeler, ask Dom Lushishin when he's trying to predict the save percentage you know, portion of the bracket. It's really friggin' hard. Because yeah, I think I've only <laughs> seen work done by Cole Anderson on that, and it was very recently in Columbus this year. And having talked to him about it a bit, that's really it. And then the thing about that work is unless you have a unique understanding of the position and a little bit of a background on numbers, you're not going to be able to understand it. Like, it's one of those things. So I think you bring up a good point. It's so hard to evaluate because... One of the things you and I talk about a lot is how much is it the goaltender versus the D in front of you? And there's a couple great examples, like how good are Minnesota goaltenders or is it the fact that Minnesota plays like the most boring brand of hockey versus how good is a Leaf goaltender or a Penguins goaltender because they play run and gun? I mean, Devin Dubnik's a classic example. You look at him in Edmonton. Exactly. And they're giving up backdoor passes. They're giving up two-on-ones. They're giving That's up... That's Montreal's very MO, <laughs> is two-on-ones and backdoor passes. And somehow Carey Price manages to stay like five or seven a game. And I think this is one of the biggest things that might not show up in the public data. Because let's talk about what the public data is. It's a shot from this location. We can see the shot came from here. That's a decent starting point. It's good to know where the shot came yes. from. It's better to know than to not know. It's better to just treat, you know, that shot from the slot as opposed to treating all shots equal. Right. Because, no, that's dumb. We don't want to treat a shot you from the track, blue line. Um, time since last shot, which would be an indicator of a rebound. Um, I believe there is someone, and I'm their name escapes me, who actually tracks if it is a rebound or not with just one of those if else one or zero for yes and no. Um, I think a lot of the all the expected goals models they're doing that right. because if a shot's a rebound, it has a way higher chance. Five, five times better chance of going in than if it weren't a rebound. And when you think about it intuitively. That makes sense, because if you're a goaltender reacting to a rebound, yeah, there's going to be a lot more open net than if you're square to the shot. But here's the thing about shot locations and expected goals, and we're numbers people. We love using the numbers. But the hard part with goalies is that if these numbers were good, they'd be able to predict the future a little bit better. And they're not, so what's missing? What's the biggest missing piece so, of information here? Remember, like, super early on when I told you that a lot of the data being used publicly isn't accurate? Remember when I well, told you yeah, that? Well, yeah, that's... Well, I, I've seen some people who do some tracking. It's funny. So the NHL actually had a problem this year where all of the shot locations that were in their play-by-play -play data were incorrect. So First month of the season? First two or three I weeks, I remember it. the first month of the season, and Evolving Hockey um, brought it up, Micah brought it up, because everything was wrong. So And it screwed up and skewed all their data, which goes to show you that if the data is not being taken correctly and inputted correctly, then nothing else means anything, because then you're building models off of numbers that don't really exist. And to so, the NHL's credit, they got that fixed. And you know me, yes. I'm a huge supporter and big NHL fanboy here. You know, always always protecting the shield when it comes to the NHL. But Hashtag. they did get that fixed. They did yes. get that fixed. So, I mean, kudos to I them. would say um, a lot of the things that aren't tracked are important. So there are things behind the scenes that are 
um, things like where the passes come from. So there's pre-shot data behind the scenes. There is also, was it a two-on-one? Was it an odd man rush of any kind? What type of odd man rush? Was it a, I remember specifically doing this when I was evaluating uh, a certain New Jersey goaltender. Um, and I filtered down two-on-ones uh, with a pass with a rebound. So I was able to filter through three times and stratify the data three times in order to get the answer that the coach was looking for. Could you see if it was a clear sight shot or not? I know literally there's yes. a site called Clear Sight Analytics. It's one of my it's probably my favorite. It's the one you mentioned, Steve Valaket. It's funny. The reason I know who Steve Valaket is is because in NHL 09, he was the tallest backup goalie I could sign at six foot six. <laughs> So I just wanted to sign him, and he was pretty good for me. No, so you but can. Now in, in the data that I had access to, you could filter for screenshots or not. So you could filter for whether or not there was. And the odds of there being a screen on a 2-on-1 are really thin. Oh, yeah, not on a 2-on-1. <laughs> I'm just thinking any shot in particular. Yes, you can filter for screens. And you can filter for deflections um and where that deflection was so whether or not it was like a deflection off a shot block at the top of the circle or it was some defenseman waving his stick right at the net front and then this is something where you can say okay a deflection has a higher percentage of going in of course the goalie the expected save percentage on that shot is going to be lower uh rebound the expected save percentage is going to be way lower and now the big ones are two on one breakaway backdoor passes we're reaching the point where there's a better likelihood of this puck going in than not going in. And this is the hard part where if you're a goalie who plays on a team that's constantly giving up these high-quality chances, backdoor, east-west movement. Basically all of the eastern Canadian teams. Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto. <laughs> if you want to watch two-on-ones, those are the teams. Hey, if you want to watch two-on-ones at both ends of the ice, just yes, tune so right that's in. Exactly it's a good what I time. Meant. And if you hate two-on-ones and you hate offense, Minnesota. the Minnesota Wild are the team for you. Yes. New York Islanders when Matt Barzell's off the ice. Also oh, my great, goodness. Great I, don't, I feel like if I had access to that data, I could probably figure out that the team that gave up the least amount of two-on-ones this year was one of Minnesota or the Islanders. I'd be very curious who, who and I know that wouldn't be the New York Rangers. No. They gave up like four a game. <laughs> Feel really bad for their goaltenders. They but they got a bunch of young Russians back there. Yeah, they're gonna be fine. fine. The metro for goaltending coming up is gonna be insane. We talked about this briefly, but I'm hoping that all of this data that the NHL, the tracking data, is going to lead to better evaluations of goaltenders. But specifically where it pertains to the metro, there's a ton of really young goalies, and we're gonna get to see this tracking data for their entire careers, basically. So you'll those will be legitimate candidates for how good is this data and how good are these goalies when we use this data we've got the guinea pigs here we've got carter hart we got elvis mers lickens who else we got shesterkin uh blackwood carter samsonov in washington yep samsonov tristan jari um your boy mackenzie blackwood yep and the islanders have Ilya sorokin like every team in the metro basically has a a really good young goaltender, if not two, in the Rangers' case. So here's the interesting thing with what we're talking about, because some people are numbers people, so some people don't really care about, like, you know, just tell me, is he good in his crease? Does this goaltender, what does, that mean? does he read the play well? Like, what does, is he good in his crease mean? Because I hear that all the time, and then I talk to Kat Silverman, and she goes, that means nothing. Like, I don't know what that means. I think here's the hard part. It's that... It's like the word hockey sense. It's something you can just throw out there if you haven't watched someone at all. Because I've done this sometimes, too, where I'm like, ah, oh, goalie had a good night. Oh, goodness, Chris. You know, you look goodness, Chris. And it's <laughs> like, I'm running, out of, I'm, I'm running out of things to say. I'm up against the clock. I'm two sentences. I need a third sentence. He looked good in his crease. I'm just going to be honest. He did. He looked confident there. And But talking to smarter people, you know, Jamie Noodles McLennan's probably my favorite person to talk to in this market, at least. And when he talks about Frederick Anderson, he says, yeah, there are nights where he does look good and you can just see it with your eyes. You go, no, no, no. He's square to this shot. He's reading the play. He's crisp. Well. Like his movements aren't all over the place. They're controlled. So sliding everywhere. And that's something that someone who really understands the game well 
Ken in, Ken look at Ken point out, and these are what the best scouts and the best video people, the Justin Bournes of the world, they're really good at this. The hard part with it is that it's easy to be lazy about that kind of analysis. You know what right, I mean? But and, Cole Anderson actually has stuff to quantify that now. So when you say, or Jamie McLennan says he's goodness crease, he was crisp, he was in position, Cole Anderson's actually has something that measures, okay, based on this shot and what happened, this is where the goalie is supposed to be. This is where the goalie is. How far is the goalie from, like, what is the difference? So then you can actually measure, is the goalie out of position or how good positionally is the goalie for that particular shot? And once you start having things like that, that are public, then the goalie evaluation will be a lot better. Because if I say to you, or you say to me, Frederick Anderson looks good in his crease, and then I grab a screen grab of, okay, this is the silhouette of where he's expected to be for this shot, and this is where he is, and I send it to you, and it is like basically two different things, then you're going to say, okay, you know what, maybe he wasn't as good in his crease as I thought, right? So it's one of those things where we may actually have data coming up that allows us to quantify what right now are subjective statements. I think the hard part with where a goalie should be and where he's supposed to be is I do think it depends on goalie to goalie because we've seen this that some goalies prefer to be deeper in their crease. Some goalies prefer, we call this goaltending depth. Some goalies prefer being a bit closer to their goal line and some goalies prefer being like 10 feet out of their crease like Jonathan Quick. I'm trying to think of another really aggressive goalie. You can think of Sergei Bobrovsky. You can think of maybe Braden Holtby in his prime. Goalies that like being a little bit more aggressive, cutting down the angle. Right, and then you've got guys on the goal line like Henrik Lundqvist and even to a degree Vasilevsky. Frederick Anderson plays deeper in his crease, at least that's when he's at his best. And this is something where when you look at the dynamic between the system and the structure in front of a goalie, and the decisions that the goaltender's making, you can see how there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of interaction between, well, if the defense and the goaltender aren't on the same page, the results are going to be bad for everyone. And I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs analyst, fan, whatever you want to call it. I watch a lot of their games. So that's where I'm going to have my best analysis when it comes to goaltending. Let me tell a quick Frederick Anderson story. When he first comes to the team, his first month in Toronto, Mike Babcock wants him to play super aggressive, wants him to come way out of his crease, cut down that first shot, we'll take away the passes, we'll take away the rebounds. And Frederick Anderson isn't good at playing that far out of his net because he doesn't recover in time. The the classic example is the Winnipeg Jets, that crazy comeback game that they have against Toronto. Uh, Nikolai Ehlers fakes a slap shot from the right side of the ice. Frederick Anderson comes way out of his crease. In In a pulled goalie scenario, Anderson's way out of the crease. Ehlers fakes the slap shot, goes cross ice to Lane. Lane's staring at an open net. And he he blasts it in pretty easily. And I think that was the big time we realized, okay, Frederick Anderson, even though he's clearly an extremely talented goaltender, playing that deep out of his crease, that's out of his comfort zone. And with the Leafs' inability to kind of make up for a goaltender who's going to play that aggressively. I'm not trusting the Leafs' defense to make up for anything right now. So I'm going to play as a goalie how I want to play. Prime LA Kings? Fine. Yeah, Jonathan Quick, go ahead. Go crazy. Go way out of your crease. We'll take away that backdoor pass. We'll take away the rebounds. 2017 Leafs? Absolutely not. May- maybe not. <laughs> so Absolutely not. I think that- and you can see it with the New York Islanders. You can see they're not giving up backdoor. They're not giving up cross ice. They're not giving up anything in the defensive zone uh, and you can cycle see the situation. With the Rangers, where Shesterkin plays really deep, and the Rangers give up 17 two on ones a game. Yeah, you look at the Rangers, uh, whatever number you want to look at, scoring chances against, shots against, expected goals against. It's very, very high. And that team, thanks to some solid goaltending, a really great power play, and Artemi Panarin, who's our pick for the Hart Trophy, they have a shot at making the playoffs. I don't know if we're going to have 24 teams if we come back. I don't know what the heck we're going to do, but... Man, they're not in the playoffs because of their defense. They're not in the playoffs because of their defense's own structure. They're in the playoffs for some other reasons. But getting back to the goaltending yeah, like, here. What's the best way to measure it? Because we talked about Cole Anderson, and he's got a website that actually uses a ton of this data. It's called Crowd Scout Sports. And if you go through and you kind of click through some of the visualizations he's created, they are very telling. And you can find some stuff on there that you may not expect to see. It's kind of like... 
I was scrolling through and I'm like, hmm, I see a lot of arguments about Carey Price on Twitter today, because this was yesterday, and I'm going to go through and see. And if you look at the season Carey Price has had based on the season he's expected to have, based on the shots he's facing, he's actually having a very good season by the data that may not be publicly available. And so maybe, is Carey Price overrated? Yes, I think he is. Is he still a very good goaltender? Yes, he is. I think it's one of those things where we need to find better ways to evaluate it, and Cole Anderson's website is absolutely one of them, and so is Steve Valakat's. And the hard part with goaltending is that we could have a goalie who, by every measure, is first in the league this season. Next season, could fall off a cliff, and it's one of those hard parts where it's like, man, why why is there so much volatility to this Cam position? Cam <laughs> perfect example. Cam Talbot probably should have won the Vesna that year in Edmonton, or at least, uh, I don't know, top three for sure. He was fantastic that season, 70-plus games. Edmonton made the playoffs. Edmonton made the playoffs. They were giving up a lot of quality chances, and he was stopping most of them. Right. And then the next year, he's a disaster, and now he's in Calgary, and I'm not even sure if he's a starting caliber goal in the NHL anymore. And it's just, it's bizarre. But if we're, turn, if we're looking at, okay, what was a goalie supposed to do on this shot, and what did he actually do? I think that's my favorite way of trying to evaluate the position, because in my head I think, well, what else can the goalie do? The goalie can't control the number of chances that are coming his way. He can't control the quality of chances that are coming his way. Some people would argue, well, he can control a little bit, but for the most part, you can't control what's coming your way. You can only control what you can stop. Right. So most of us, like, save percentage over wins or goals against average because you can't control how many shots you're facing. You can't control whether or not your team's putting the puck in the net. So save percentage was always our kind of favorite thing to look at. But the more we learn about... The more you really think about it, is it's that... Shots on the power play, a team that gives up a lot of penalties, a team that is giving up tons of backdoor passes, a team that's given up tons of chances. Your goalie's just naturally going to have a lower save percentage, even if they're a better goalie than a team who is just doing everything they can to suppress the quality chances. So what we need is a better way to quantify, okay... What was the actual chance of that shot going in? And the hard part right now is that we don't have a great measure of that. Expected goals is the best thing we have. But it doesn't take backdoor passes, odd man rushes, uh, screens. There's a lot it's not taken into account. So I think what you're referring to, you're referring to some of the black box stuff, the uh, clear sight analytics, sport logic. That's some of the behind the scenes stuff that you can take a look at that you working for an NHL team in the past. You've seen some of this stuff. And it's cool stuff. Yeah, like I would say even the expected goal stuff that you brought up, I would look at. So Sport Logic's expected goals is obviously built on their stuff. And like Micah has expected goals, Evolving Hockey does, a bunch of people have expected goals using the public data. And then just for funsies one day, because if I didn't have enough to do, um, I compared Sport Logic's expected goals using their stuff that included a bunch of the stuff that you just mentioned and compared it to a bunch of other models that used public data, and the difference was shocking. I've heard this from a lot of people. Because it accounts for things like odd man rushes, backdoor passes, screenshots, all that pre-shot data um, that the public data can't because it doesn't exist publicly. And so we're all out here using the data, and the models are so good based on the data that the people have to work with, but they don't necessarily tell the whole truth because it's they're missing data, which is why I always went with the sport logic, because I knew the components that were in it. And that's the biggest thing, I think. It's that we're missing certain things, so how do we fill in the blanks here? The hard part is that if you're on the public, if you're on the outside looking in, if you're just on Twitter trying to rank goalies and you're, you're saying, okay, I want to know how good is this guy? How good is that guy? With what we have publicly, it's hard. But the interesting thing that I find is that if you can just go to ClearSight Analytics right now, I'm literally just going to go to ClearSight Analytics. I think they have everything up until February 29th. So basically everything through February. 
Right. Which is most of the season. They'll give you top fives and bottom fives in a lot of different so who categories. So they have listed as the top five? So my favorite stat to look at is the difference between what your expected save percentage was and what your actual save percentage was. Because, again, if, you, if your team gives up a crazy amount of chances, a crazy amount of quality chances, then you're not going to be expected to have a super high save percentage. Of course Because not. your team, frankly... Jacob Markstrom is a perfect example. I love the Canucks. I love Quinn Hughes. I love watching that team. They have not done a great job of insulating him from quality chances. He has to face a lot of them. So when he has a, what, 920 save percentage? Right. That's the equivalent of some guys having a 930. Right. You know, because the, just the quality chances he's facing, it's really the tough. The difference between... That's why he's in the top five. Markstrom playing behind Vancouver and Markstrom playing behind Boston or Minnesota would be different. Like, I totally agree. I Dallas think, might be the best example right yeah. now, honestly. Or the, the Islanders. Yeah, if, I think if Markstrom played for the Islanders or for Minnesota, he might be closer to 935. Because he... It might be closer to 940. Yeah, I mean, like, the one year Devin Dubnik actually played well, he put up numbers in that range. Exactly. So I think you make a really good point there in that it also depends on the team that's playing in front of you and the amount of sheer expected goals data that you're facing, right? Are If your team's giving up 4.2 expected goals a game and Tuka Rask's team is giving up 2.8 or whatever it is, that's a huge difference, right? And so you technically, you should have a worse um, goals against than the team that gives up less. That's how it works. So this is where I start to ask myself the the numbers versus the eye test. Because doing the Leafs report cards after every game, there were some times where I watched the full game and I thought, this player played really well. I really like XYZ, made notes throughout the entire game. I'm like, yeah, this is four out of five stars. Really like this player's game. And the numbers were just garbage on the player. And I'm thinking... Man, was I wrong there? Like, what, what's going on here? And then sometimes with a goaltender, I'm watching the game and I just go, well, he had no chance on that one. He had no chance on that one. He had no chance on that one. And then he made a couple of really big saves. Ends the night going, what, 24 for 28? And the save percentage is brutal. And I'm thinking, I thought he had a pretty good game. Yeah, it's like and if then you there are two, <laughs> like, one of them's a two on one, one of them's a breakaway, one of them's a five on three. Like, exactly what are you asking of your goaltender at that point? Now, here's the thing. As a fan, I'll always say that a goalie is supposed to stop two-thirds of the breakaway he faces. Right. So, or, you know... Are they two-thirds of breakaways against on a two on Frederick Goche, or are they two-thirds of breakaways against Mitch Marner? Because I would probably make the argument that you may not stop Mitch Marner two out of three times. Yeah, it's... I mean... You know what I mean? Like, Patrick Kane on a breakaway is as good as gold. Right? So yeah, I, there are I some players who are much better too. than others. Yeah. Right? If you That's fair. That's if fair. If you're a third line player, fourth line player, player that Michael Grabner, I might expect you to stop every single one of them just based on but shooting talent. I remember someone uh, from the Athletic Montreal reaching out to me because I'd written that article about Morgan Riley where I was just like, "Man, am I wrong and do I just need to completely yes. rethink the way I look at the game?" And yeah, you tell me anytime I criticize Morgan Riley, you tell me Harman yes, has rethink your life. Harman has him as the top valued Leaf contract. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, not Mitch Marner. That's mm, mm, <laughs> a spicy meatball. <laughs> not gonna touch that one. No, but it's funny. Uh, I think it was um, Duma from uh, oh, the Mark Athletic Duma. Montreal. Love him. Yeah. Love him. He reached out to me and he was like. With Carey Price, it's interesting. I've had this thing where the numbers, the evolving wild stuff, the goals saved above average, the goals saved above expected, all the fancy goalie stats say that Carey Price has been bad this year, but I watch him closely. I talk to people around the team, and I I think, no, I I think he's been pretty good. I just think the goals that have gone in have been a lot of ones where he doesn't have much of a chance and his defense is kind of, you know, not bailing him out on the backdoor pass. You look at some of the closer stuff, and it confirms a lot of that. It says what? That he's been a top five, top ten goalie in the NHL this yeah, year? Yeah, I think Cole Anderson stuff says he's kind of in that num- like 7 to 10, 7 to 11 range. I believe Steve Valaket stuff says the same thing. Jamie McLennan would make the argument he's still a top five goalie. What's interesting is everyone's hooting and hollering about John Gibson. 
hasn't been very good this year by basically every number. He's not saved what he should have saved. So he doesn't have a good goal saved above average. Yes, he plays in Anaheim, but everyone's saying, oh, Gibson this, Gibson that. He hasn't been very good this year. In fact, if you actually look at Cole Anderson's data, he's been way worse than Carey Price. I mean, look at Sergei Bobrovsky. Frederick Anderson had a down year. It's interesting when these good goalies just have bad years and you try to explain it. You try to come up with a really good reason. I think a lot of it is between the ears sometimes. You know, I I think once confidence takes a hit and you get inside your own head and with pitching, with goaltending, with these positions that are just much more mental than they are physical... I think you can end up with seasons where an excellent goalie just has a really bad year and you try to find a way to explain it. You try to go, oh yeah, no, there was this nagging injury, you know, the team was going through X, Y, Z. I don't know. I, I try to find ways to explain this stuff. And with goaltenders, a lot of it is left unexplained to me. And, I, and I'm not left with a great explanation. I'm not sure if there are things behind the scenes that you know more about from certain stories of, oh yeah, this goaltender, yeah, his results weren't great, but we knew about this, that, the I other thing. The so this makes a bit more sense. The one thing that kept coming up was certain goalies after hip injuries, there was a noticeable um, decrease in their odd man rush save. So in once a lateral pass was made, basically, there was a noticeable difference. Oh, like stretching across to take away. there was a noticeable difference or decrease in the amount of saves made. And obviously that hurts your save percentage. But that's one of those things where that's not publicly measurable. Whereas some of the data, because I I do believe Steve Valaket does a lot of, he uses his own stuff to measure. So he definitely has data that the public doesn't. And so I would trust kind of what goes on there over a lot of anything else. And and so I think one of those things is you can look at injury markers and the impact certain injuries have on things. So if a goalie has a bad hip or a bad groin, and then all of a sudden they're getting beat on lateral passes, that's probably related. All right, before we get to the Kovalev shift, who are your top five goalies in the NHL right now? You have a do-or-die Game seven that you're going into, who are the top five goalies in the NHL that you want on your so team? based on how they played and this season. I would say you have to... You can go last couple seasons. I don't know, I feel like you have to go this season because we just talked about how goalies have up and down years. Like Because generally you would pick Frederick Anderson, and right now, I wouldn't. You know what I'm saying? That's fair. I mean, it, it depends. Is it October, November? <laughs> <laughs> fair. No, but I think we should go with like this season because we just talked about how goalies are voodoo and have up and down years. So if we're picking from this season, that's probably okay. I would take Hellebuck would be my first pick. No, I mean that's based on this season. He, he seems to be in the zone, so yeah, yeah. that's fair. He's a one man team. Hellebuck Markstrom, um, based on the seasons they were having when they were playing, Ranta and Kemper, and then my fifth would be Rask. Those would be my five. All right. Tell you what. How about... Okay. Here's how I like doing goalie analysis. Whenever I'm looking at numbers, I go over the last three seasons, over the last five seasons, because it's one of those positions where, much like hitters in baseball, you just need more data. It's like you try to evaluate a hitter in a one-week sample, in a two-week sample. Dumb. You know how much meaning that has? Don't do it. Nothing. <laughs> they play it's 182 useless. games or 162 yeah. games. And it's why I say, hey, let's evaluate a backup goalie based on a 10-game sample. Nope, I'm like, yeah, let's not yeah do that. That, we're really going to get a great sense of, of how good he is at, at his job. It's, But again, when your position is winning or losing games, I understand why coaches are pulling the plug a bit quicker on a goaltender who's really struggling. And I, I completely understand it, what it could cost you your job. It's one of those positions where even though it's the most important, there's also the most volatility from game to game. It leads to a lot of craziness, and it's part of the reason the sport, I think, is just so goddamn random when you're trying to look at the, the betting market. How come the betting odds in hockey are way closer to 50% than any other sport, right. you know, like basketball or soccer, where talent tends to prevail a bit more often, or football? In a one-game sample, the better team in football, the better team in basketball tends to win. Right. In hockey, you never know. Right. But if I'm going top five right now... You know what's interesting is everyone says Carey Price. 
if you all the yeah. people in the game, all the people around the game, the quote unquote two hundred hockey men, they're all saying Carey Price. And we're gonna get to why that is in the Kovalev shift because there's a okay. very key factor there. Can I say that he's in my top five? Okay, he's not my top one, two, or three right now. I just I haven't seen the prime Carey Price. I haven't seen it for long enough. I feel like we saw it towards the end of the 2018 season. Yeah, if you were to give me the three years, I would have Price in my five. I think Bobrovsky, in a good year, I want him. This isn't that year. Yeah, not this year. <laughs> Vasilevsky, in a good year, I want him. And this is a, this looks like a good year for Vasilevsky. He started off a bit slow, but he turned it around. And, I mean, when a goaltender does that, I fall back on the larger sample, and I know that Vasilevsky is going right. to make rubbery saves and... So Vasilevsky is definitely good for me. Bobrovsky and Price are definitely there for me. Holtby used to be there, Not but he's anymore. fallen off. I think Hellebuck's had what, two amazing seasons in a row now. He was pretty good the year before that, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Like he's been good consistently now, and he's been. I'm, I'm looking at this chart thing. He is so far above everyone else. It is not even funny. It is. He is more than double the second place guy. <laughs> Is Robin Lehner in your top five right no. now? I think he's in mine, just based on his play the last two seasons. He's blown me out of the water. Like I did not think he was this in Buffalo. I knew he was good. But then when he went to the Islanders and basically put up a Vesna quality season, did he win the Vesna that year? No, he won the Jennings. He won the Jennings, okay. Well, he split the Jennings with uh, Grace. Right. Or Halak. They, Barry Trotz. Was Grace that yes. year. <laughs> Barry Trotz is the Jennings at this yeah. point. But... Could you imagine if Barry Trotz coached in Minnesota? <laughs> oh. Well, you know what's funny is Barry Trotz coached the Washington Capitals. Doesn't get enough credit for still allowing that team to be creative offensively right. while settling some things down defensively. But okay, let me let me get my list in order here because I was just spitballing. I'm trying to do it in order. I think number one, I want Vasilevsky right now. I just I think he's the best goalie in the NHL when he's on his A game. Bobrovsky, Price, Lehner, Frederick Anderson. I know he's not, this hasn't been his best year, but I do think he's a top five goal in the NHL. John Gibson, I, I understand that too. Yeah, see, That's for me, the only reason pick. Gibson got left out is because I did my, based on this season only. If you, if I have a few years of that, I'm, Gibson's in my top five all day long. Talking to some of the uh, really smart goalie analysts when it comes to the scouts and the eye test, they're not as high on Gibson as maybe the, the public numbers make him look. Mm-hmm. And that, I always find that discussion interesting because he's always someone, for the longest time, I thought he was overrated. And now I think he's underrated. So <laughs> with goalies, this tends to happen from time to time. But let's get to the Kovalev shift because it relates to Carey Price and this idea of, well, forget about the numbers for one second. Do or die, Game 7, which goal in the NHL is the me- mentally the strongest right now. I think a lot of people would pick Carey Price, and this is the part of the position where, in pitching, I think of mentally strong pitchers, I think of someone like Roy Halladay, where I just go, yeah. you know, he might not have had it that day from a pitching perspective, you know, the, the curveball might not have been spinning, but he, he just had the look of defiance in him that he was going to get the job done, and I think you see that with Carey Price when he's on his A game. So, what is the Kovalev shift today? What is the the main question we're going to be diving into? So, specific to goalies, what quality is more important, assuming all else is equal? So, they're basically the same goalie. We've mutated and cloned them. One has athleticism, and one has mental fortitude. What quality is more important? So, the athleticism is obviously nice. I think we might be on the same side here. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because... I always want my, uh, you know, if you ask me this question about forwards, I'm like, give me that speedy, skilled zone entry guy, and I'll, I'll coach him how to play defense. I'll, I'll, I'll do X, Y, Z, because just give me the talent, and I'll figure it out. But I think the hard part with goalies is that if you just give me a freak athlete who, after he lets in the first goal, is going to let in another soft one after that, and then he's going to let in another one after that. And then you're going to lose the game because the team doesn't have faith in him to make that fourth save. And now you've given up the backdoor pass. I think there's a reason why players like Carey Price keep making these lists. And even though I think they're slightly overrated, I think there's a reason that people in the sport have so much faith in these guys. And, you know, watching the Jordan documentary right now, it's funny because statistically... 
he's the greatest player of all time. If you look at any of the numbers, it's like, yeah, this guy's impact on the game when he was on the floor, his scoring. You look at any playoff numbers where his numbers went up. Jordan, in his era, was clearly the greatest and a very strong argument that he's the greatest player of all time. But the thing that I think we underrate and that you really get from watching the Jordan documentary, the intimidation factor, the the fact that he was going to will his team to victory... It's hard, something that you can't really measure. You can just see it and you can feel it. I think Carey Price kind of gives you that feel, and he the way he carries yeah, himself. Like, I think for me, mental fortitude is supremely important as a goaltender. I would make the argument it is the position where if you don't have mental fortitude, you will not have success. Because you mentioned it, if you let in a bad goal... I need to know that that thing is going to be expelled from your mind and you're going to be able to bounce back. And the best goalies can do that. They'll let in a softie or a, a goal that maybe was bad luck, but then two minutes later, there'll be a breakaway and you know that the save is getting made. It doesn't matter who's coming down. You know that that goalie's making that save. Whereas if you don't have the mental fortitude and another bad goal goes in, now you're down probably two cob. Which is not good. And and this is the difference between kind of those poised veteran, uh, what's the right word? Kind of like an NHL pro who just is used to it. And you see the young athletic goalie who kind of gets a bit rattled. Right. And you just, you, you go, oh man, like I see the raw talent here, but he's got to figure this out. You and know? I think that was why Carey Price went as high as he did in his draft. It was because if you look at all of the things leading up to his draft year. And then the World Juniors kind of sealed it for me. The guy went head-to-head, I believe, in like a nine-round shootout with the Americans. And I bet you if he had a heart monitor on, it basically was normalized the whole time, whereas most guys like would have flat had a... flatline. He's basically dead. Right. <laughs> I think Jamie McLennan says he's cool as a cucumber. It's one of those things where you don't get riled up because what happens is, is when you get riled up and you don't have the mental fortitude, you start over-pushing, you start over-committing, you start swimming. And I think that that is a key piece in the goaltending because at the end of the day... If you have a really good goalie coach, they'll teach to your strengths. They'll work with you on your strengths. So you don't necessarily have to be all that athletic if you can make the saves within yourself. You will not have success if you don't have mental fortitude. And I think the most elite goalies are the ones that do have that mental fortitude. Like you look at um, some of the NHL's elite and their ability to bounce back after... Uh, they've let in a bad goal or things are maybe a little bit shaky, I think that that sort of separates them from the pack. I mean, forget about goalies. We could just talk about this at the team level, at players, defensemen, forwards. We see this with the Leafs all the time. This is the, the biggest criticism of their game is that are they a mentally strong team? After getting punched in the mouth, are they going to you know rile themselves back into a game? Sometimes yes, often no, and it's frustrating. <laughs> Certainly not in April. I mean, I was going to say, against Carolina, it depends. Is this the Mitch Marner game where he has five points, or is this the David Ayers game where they get embarrassed on national television? Right. This is the frustrating part with the Leafs, and the Leafs are kind of like that young, athletic goalie who has all the makings to be an all-time great, but it's getting is punched in the mouth, letting in a soft goal, and then lets in a second one, and then lets in a third one. And I one. would say, and in the same way that we talk about hockey sense being difficult to teach mental fortitude is probably even harder to deal with than like i could teach you how to be flexible like for me as someone who used to be a gymnast i lost the splits because i just stopped doing them i got them back in three weeks like not inherently difficult we can work on how flexible you are and and reaction time and all that other stuff we can work on that it is extremely difficult to see vast improvement in things like mental fortitude because right now I don't know of any accurate way to even measure it. So it's pretty subjective. And two, that's your mental makeup. That's things that happen based on psychology, which I believe you have a degree in. So like Eric Erickson stuff, then there's like the Pavlov conditioning. Like that stuff is way difficult, way more difficult to impact and the personality. 
And it's funny because when we're talking about personality, a lot of us like to think, you know, like, oh, I'm coaching, I'm going to groom this guy, and he's going to, I'm going to mold him into the player I want him to be. But you're not going to change that player's personality. You're not going to change fundamentally who that player is. So you have to work within you're that. Not going to change a leopard's spots. Exactly. So how do you how do you get the most out of that player who maybe has these frustrating tendencies? And again, I'm going to bring up this Jordan documentary because it's the only thing in sports right now that I'm watching that is actually okay, can you new not and spoil fun it for and exciting. Me though, because I haven't seen it yet. Without spoiling it, what I will say is that the Phil Jackson aspect of things is the part that I find the most interesting, just because he's dealing with some of the most interesting personalities, I would say, in sports. When he was with the Bulls, he had Michael Jordan, who's a sociopathic winner. He has Scottie Pippen, who's kind of this, like, you know feels underappreciated kind of guy. You have Dennis Rodman, who is insane but also incredible at basketball and it's like how do you work with all this and it's it, he kind of had that in la too and he had kobe who personality wise was very similar to jordan. jordan he had i mean ron artest was completely insane and he coached it and it's like how do you work with these personalities the how do you get the most out of meta this world piece that's we just leave that there He's panda friend right now, actually. His name has been changed another yeah, time. Yeah, okay, so we're you... just going to leave that there. But I think... <laughs> but the part I wanted to bring up there, real quick, before we finish up the goaltending talk, is just Phil Jackson and dealing with personalities. We're talking about mental fortitude right now. You know, you never had to worry about that with Jordan. You know, he never had to worry about that with the best of the best. But there are some players where... Scotty Pippen's a great example where he'd get down on himself at a certain time. And I think as much as in media we want to crush that individual player for getting, you know, beaten down, it's up to that player's teammates, that player's coaches, the players around them to find a way to bounce back. And at the end of the day, the player has to take some of the ownership on that too. And with goaltenders, you're making a bigger impact than anyone. You need to make an effing save when your team really needs it. Which goalie can you count on to make that save when the chips are down? Carey Price is that guy for so many people. Right. I understand why. Are we overrating it a little bit? I think maybe, but at the end of the day, when you are all things being equal, which is what the question was, I'm taking mental fortitude because I can work with basically everything else. I can't change your spots. And I think when you talk about mental fortitude, there are two sports that come to mind. Golf you have to have a short-term memory very much like a goalie and gymnastics as well. Like there is zero chance of you completing a skill on a beam that's four inches thick. If you don't have the mental fortitude to get everything else out of your brain, especially if you fall, how are you going to get up and do another backflip? You just fell down. Same with golf. You have a bad shot. How are you going to get up and not try and overextend yourself and make it worse? Very similar with the goaltending. You let in a bad goal, you've got to be able to forget it and move on. And further to that, if you have that mental fortitude, you project calmness and stability on your teammates. And I think that is super underrated and super important. Um, Frederick Anderson in Toronto, when he's at his best, you feel it. And it's funny because Toronto's defense is the opposite of that. No, they (laughs) have like fire drill feelings in me. And it's part of the reason when you have a fire drill goalie back there like a Garrett Sparks or a Michael Hutchinson and a defense that can't limit shots, oh, you have a bad time. But when you have a goalie who can kind of settle things down, it can help settle the defense down a little bit too. And it has that, like we said, that, that cascading effect where everything's kind of clicking and working together. It matters. And it's hard to measure. It's, we're nerds. We love having ways of measuring and quantifying. Let's rank them based on this metric. We don't have a metric for mental fortitude. Yeah, there's like a bunch of tests that teams do during drafts and stuff like that that'll have, um, like, I think Core 5 Analytics does tests where it will tell you, like, okay, these are red flags in terms of like mental fortitude. And there's it's broken down into various categories. And then you can really have a breakdown of, kind of how that player thinks but that's not to say athleticism isn't important because you can't be a goalie without athleticism but you also need to have mental fortitude so like don't take it as a one or the other situation oh see what i thought you meant is that you want goalies who are unathletic and bad yes absolutely by all means take the 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 five foot nine guy with mental Mm -hmm. fortitude instead of the six five athletic guy who can make a safe yeah no 
I think we've had literally a nine minute shift at this point. So it's been a long shift here. Been a really one of those like yeah. three on three shifts where you just hold possession. Right. All right. So now we're going to do our top three. Do you want to kick it off? So yeah. So during quarantine, we've been doing these top threes at the end of episodes to try to keep our sanity. You know, so what is today sanity? we're going to do. To- I mean, what is sanity anymore? What we talk about the new normal. I don't know what life is anymore. It's 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 taken on a you know social interactions aren't what they were anymore. It's it's weird. Life is weird right now. We're gonna try to do this to try to return to some kind of normalcy when it comes to that kind of random chit chat at the office, that random water cooler so talk. So the first so. three we'll do, we'll just name them off and then we'll get to our second one because this is going to be a debate. Um Top three sodas. Because we can just name them. Top three sodas. Does Red Bull count? No. (sighs) Okay, because you know what I started recently? stop drinking that. (laughs) Diet Red Bull. I started Diet Red Bull. I I don't know what's in it that's killing me. I know know there's something in there that can't be good for you. Energy drinks, awful for you. Stop that. (laughs) You know what else is bad for you? Coffee, and people drink it every day. I'm allergic to coffee, so I have never had it. Little known fact about Rachel, allergic to coffee. Wow. Okay. Well, most people drink coffee and it's like, oh, how do you start your day? Oh, you know, with coffee. And it's like, most people are drugging themselves in the morning to get through their day. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So I'm doing more the diet Red Bull in the morning slash maybe a five hour energy if I feel like it. That's how I'm caffeinating myself. Oh my God. Rachel is looking at me. Rachel's (laughs) looking at me like I'm a crazy person. So I can't. Real talk. I can't have Red Bull because of my heart. And I can't have coffee because I'm allergic to it. So let's just focus on sodas. Carbonated drinks manufactured by Coca-Cola and <sighs> Pepsi. Lately, it's been... I'm trying to think of how to get caffeine in myself because I need energy to start my day. Getting out of bed in the morning is the hardest part. But sodas in terms of just actual flavor... Uh, Coke and Pepsi... Uh, people who say that they're drastically different... I'm sorry. I don't taste it. So I'm, I'm going to group those two together. Okay. Orange Crush. Ooh. I don't drink it anymore, but when I was a kid, that was my favorite. All right. And Sprite. I'll I'll go, those are pretty basic and default, but I do like those three. So I'll go with those three. All right. If I'm DD for a night and you're at the bar and it's like, what do do you have? I'm like, get me a Coke. Get me a Pepsi. Oh, we're all out. Nah, get me a Sprite. Okay, so here's (laughs) the fun. I drink Coke. That's basically all I drink in terms of soft drinks. And I... If they say, oh, I'm sorry, all we have is Pepsi. I will not drink it. What's your response? Wow. No, I will not drink it. My girlfriend's like that too, and I'm sorry. I think that you're serial killers. Like, like, how? How There's not a major difference. Yes, there is. Oh my God. No, we're not getting into this. Okay, so Coke is like first, second, and third for me. But um, other than that, I'll do Nestea, like specifically the Nestea iced tea. I'm sorry, that's not a soda. If you're going to tell me I can't use Red Bull, I'm going to say you can't use Nestle. And it's made by Coca-Cola. It's, is it a soda, though? All right, fine. Well, all right. Okay, so Coca-Cola for second and third. Um, then I will do Coca-Cola Life, which is like the green one with cane sugar. I think that one's really good. And then... Coca-Cola Life? Yeah, what the hell is so that? Good. It's natural cane sugar as opposed to the artificial sugar. Um, so it's not as bad for you. Uh. Um, and then I will say, I'm going with Ian on this one with Sprite. I like Sprite because I feel like you can do a lot with that. I love how you're shaming me for my diet Red Bulls, but then you're going on about this Coke with like some weird different ingredient in it that makes it No. Okay. So the regular Coca-Cola has like a bunch of artificial ingredients in it. That's the red one. If you buy the green one, it's all natural. So the, the sugar that would be in the regular Coke is actually cane sugar, which is a naturally occurring sugar. So it's actually more healthy for you than regular red Coke. Organic Coca-Cola. I'm not advocating that either is healthy, but... As much as I want to keep talking about this, there's a much more important question I have for you. Okay, what is this? Okay, so... Too Hot to Handle. Great show on Netflix, because there's nothing else better to do right now other than watch trashy TV. So, I've been watching this show. For people who don't know, it is a show about these... Basically sex addicts, people who have been on Tinder and like who are basically out at the bar, out at the clubs every night, who are just, you know, living their best life in their 20s. They're all crazy attractive. 
this reality show, Too Hot to Handle, they get put on an island together, and they they all think that they're going to flirt and have a good time. It's going to be like The Bachelor. It's going to be a giant they're told, orgy, basically. Yeah, and they're told, you're not allowed to have sex. You're not allowed to kiss. You're not allowed to do any of that stuff. You're not allowed to, to like, the contest in uh, in Seinfeld. You're not allowed to masturbate. Like, this, everything's off the table. So you're literally not allowed to do anything. Yep. And I've been watching it. A lot of people have been watching it. It's ridiculous. And I want to know who are your top three characters on that show. And for people who haven't watched the show, please tell us why. I need, I need, we need to know more about these so characters. So I just started watching. I'm three or four episodes in. Like, I just met Bryce. And I find him to be <laughs> highly annoying. Like I have some Bryce thoughts. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I would say this might be a hot take. Um, that my... I like Chloe. I think she's kind of cute. Like, I just like how she carries Which herself. Is she the British one? I believe so. With the top banter? Yes, that one. Top, top, top yeah, banter. that one. I, I think she actually <laughs> might be Irish. Um, I like David. Um, David is... The workout guy. Have you seen him cry yet? No. Okay, there's there's a moment Dear where he God. cries, like, and it's a deep emotional part. Okay. And it's like... It's like genuine actually, and real. I actually appreciate it. I will it. take out David. Who's the accountant? Oh, Kels! Kels. Okay, I like him. He's so sassy and he actually, like, I like how he thinks. And then Harry is my guy. I just, I don't know why. I think he's totally ridiculous and totally out there. But there's something about him. He's where like I'm party like, Australian guy, but he's, he's, he's got some charm to him. I used to date an Australian, okay? There. So let's, that's probably why. I think you've dated a, a David before. I have not. You've dated a, what was his name? What's his name? Oh, we're not getting into that. I don't need people searching him up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kels, uh, real, real quick. He's the accountant on the show. He's not an accountant, but no. he's this six seven like giant monster black dude who's like intimidating. But and he's, he's just awesome. All, he's so chill. He just chills on his chair. He's just like you know lounging there. And anytime people are thinking about kills, kissing, he's like my. Mate, that's $3,000 right there. You, you can't be doing that. And that's the premise of the show, is that if you break the rules, it costs you money. You start off with $100,000. People are going to split these winnings. Now it's 97000 Oh, now it's 80-something thousand because a couple did something they shouldn't have. And Kels is always trying to remind people to not do stuff. It's, it's hilarious. My favorite is Bryce when he walks in, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> When he walks in, genuinely, I was like, this guy does not have four brain cells. That, that scene, that like oh, five minute God. segment, that Bryce segment when he comes in. They're we're working what, we're out. two or three episodes into the show. <laughs> and it's funny, the show is like, we need a bit more drama. It's been fun so far. We've had a little bit, but we need to introduce some more drama. Let's bring in this hot shot from LA. And what's funny is that what you think they're going to bring in, you think they're going to bring in like this Zach Efron y type who's just going to be like, the girls no, can't resist. They bring in a guy and who like, lives on a yacht. They bring in this guy who thinks he's Zac Efron, <laughs> who talks not. about, I, oh, I'm from L.A., I have a lot of parties on my boat, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a real ladies' man. And <laughs> you can, like, no one loves looking in the mirror more than this guy. No. And he's not even that attractive. Yeah, like, okay, he's, so I was going to say this, unattractive. as a chick who is attracted to men, I saw him and I was like, you're not even that, like... I'm not even attracted to you. Like This is what, what my girlfrender says about William Nylander. She says, Look, like, I get that he's not bad looking. I just I don't I don't I don't see it. And with with him, I'm like, yeah, no, like he's he's not reality TV like hot. He's just kind of normal, attractive. Yeah, like but you see him when in he a walks bar onto the like, show. Okay, but like you're on a TV show where everyone is a eleven out of ten. And like to be honest, he's not the only one where I'm like, mm, I don't think you're all that attractive. And but he walks in and he's just like, yeah, I'm just gonna come in and, and clean up, basically. Exactly. Like <laughs> so here's the thing with me: it's like I would sacrifice looks it for a personality. I cannot deal with people who a are unintelligent and b are a wet paper bag of a personality. Like what you'll find out as the show goes on is that the girls agree. <laughs> okay, can we talk about Haley for a second? Because I am 3ish episodes in and I get physically angry when she speaks. 
So Haley is that party girl that you knew in high school. Excuse who, me, I was that I person. Like to so no. Party and drink with my friends and like no, there ev- everyone likes I to. I never spoke like that. That's my point. It's I'm not saying that people who drink and go out and party are bad. I mean, hell, the number of Zoom calls I've had. No, she's with, just really dumb. She's the stereotypical like really girl who. How do you describe it? She's really dumb. She's, she's really, really airheaded. Rich. Yeah, really entitled, really bratty, and yeah. she's she brings some of that reality TV drama that they were looking for in the first episode or second episode, and yeah, like uh, she's the girl. You know who she is? She's the girl on The Bachelor that would be crying on the first night about not getting enough time with The Bachelor. That's who she is. And then starting a revenge plot the next day She's to get f- back okay, at all those people. Far too much she is far too stupid to be plotting anything. Her and Francesca, they they kissed each other and cost the group as a whole $3,000 and then okay, lied so about it, just... said it wasn't them. And you know what? And Jesus with... was on to them. Yeah, and anyone <laughs> with any brain cells would have put that together like the Jesus guy did. They're terrible liars. Look at their... Like, if you go back and you watch that episode and you look at their body language, I'm like, man, I would have picked that out so quickly. Like... You gotta learn to lie better. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I tell this to my campers all the time at camp. I'm like, look, if you're gonna lie to me, like, at it. I expect you to be better at it than this. Come on. <laughs> but yeah, so I just had to say that, like, Haley is, there's, like, a ranking of everyone. So I got my top, like, three, top four. Then there's everyone else. And then Haley and Bryce are, like, the below the floor. See, okay, are we talking about people who I'd want to be friends with in real life or reality TV show hilarious entertainment? Because Bryce is number one for me and there isn't even a two or three. Yeah, he's he's very entertaining. But like I'm talking about as a human being, I, I wouldn't be able to handle either of them. I just couldn't get enough of Bryce walks and talks about his boat and his parties. And he's like, okay, I'm going to meet the girls on this first night. I got, I got something for him. And he comes out with a piano, a keyboard. And he's yeah. like, this is an, this is an original song. It is <laughs> literally the worst singing. Like if you were on American <laughs> Idol, Simon Cowell would probably walk out. I think he knows like one chord or two chords and he just plays yeah, he that. Was literally and literally playing that. C and E the whole time. And like trying to get all emotional and throwing that like twang. And I'm like, you know what? I respect <laughs> this. I respect the confidence. This guy watched the Jordan documentary and he's feeling it. Yeah, just <laughs> utterly ridiculous. Maybe we'll do it's like awful. too hot to handle updates as I continue to watch it. It's funny. There are like several things right now that are keeping me going. NHL 20 with Myrtle and Dangle and my NHL club. That's that's one thing. We've got Too Hot to Handle on Netflix. We've got this Jordan documentary. Before we get out of here, what's been keeping you going right now in these in these tough, tough times? Um, one Tree Hill. Definitely. Nice. I love me some One Tree Hill. Lucas over Nathan. Thank you. Um, what else? My... Like, just prepping for work and stuff like that, dealing with school. So, like, I finished my exams. Thank God. Um, and I've decided to learn R, and I actually got somewhere. I made a chart. So, I would say I'm just trying to keep myself busy, whether it be, like, working out, because um, I'm still doing that. But now that I'm actually going to be working full-time, like, I'm sure that'll keep me occupied. And then I won't be able to have my two naps daily anymore. Um, I expect to be seeing your uh, GG plots that you're making in R. I'm looking forward to to your coding expertise. Yeah, I actually almost threw my laptop out the window already once. So I I tried to learn how to code a year ago. It's literally learning a new language. It's 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 hard. And I'm sitting there like (laughs) someone said that to me. I was like, I already speak too. Like I already speak too. So I struggle enough with one. I got I, I, I got a bit of French, but I can yeah. understand French. I'm not very good at speaking it. But yeah, so that's kind of what I've been trying to do things to like keep my brain activated. Um, my brother and I have been golfing and playing soccer in the backyard. Um, and by golfing, I was gonna say, how the hell are you golfing? We have a chipping <laughs> net, and we're chipping into the net. That's what we're doing. I was gonna say four, <laughs> like the neighbors down the. <laughs> like, exactly. Happy Gilmore when he hits the neighbor four hundred yards away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's 
just kind of various things. I think a routine is somewhat necessary, but I have like my pillars of like, okay, I have to work out. I have to do functional work. Um, I had to study, which has now been replaced with like regular work. And then everything else is like watching One Tree Hill or Grand Tour, whatever else, because I can't do much. Yeah, I'm trying to get myself into more consistent like patterns and, uh, you know, routine because, man, without a regular society, it's hard. I I need need to follow the Rachel Dory school of thought on that a bit better. (laughs) I think it's honestly, you just get used to it. Like I've been, my whole life has been structured because of gymnastics, so I can't live any other way. I have to have structure. Whereas to like people who have to get used to it, once you do, it's amazing, so... I think they say 28 to 30 days is what it takes to break a habit and form yeah. a new one. So we'll, we'll, uh, like, we'll work on it. All right. We'll just, we'll buckle down here. It's going to be hard in this, these times of, 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 uh, being stuck in your own house, not being able to do anything, but I have to think it's going to be like this for at least what, a couple more months. So I'm just trying to get used to it and try to prepare myself for, I don't know. I'm trying to take it one day at a time. I'm like, okay, let's focus on today and let's set a plan for tomorrow. And then after that, We'll see if we can keep things going, but I'm trying not to plan too much weeks in advance just because so much changes. Right. The only thing we know is we'll be doing a podcast next week. And that's like the one thing I do know. I'm like, Monday, I'm busy. Other than that, man, I'm flexible. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Stay safe, everybody. And uh, hopefully we'll better days ahead. Let's just say. Take care, everyone. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.